Hello and welcome to episode 337 of The Createment Probar. It is the 20th of August, 2020. My name is Chris Thurston. And tonight I'm joined by Mark Davies. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Rising intensity already. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like the I like the, the, the delay as well, because that implied um, like a kind of fun, like pan-continental newscast type lag, which I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, Tom, all the way in Vancouver. Yeah, thanks. Good evening, UK friends. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is very like Eurovision, Eurovision suddenly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many points to Marsh? <laughs> Mille points. <laughs> uh, we should talk. Uh, from uh, I can't do a segue here. There's no segue from um, Eurovision voting fun to mega corporations <laughs> weaponizing teens to fight for their own <laughs> profits. Um, but let's talk about it because it was pretty massive uh, news, epic news, you might say, that sprang Ooh. up. Oh, there it is. Uh, there's the pain. <laughs> there we've located it. It's right there, like a chiropractor for language, but instead we've got a bad. A, a bad one that's making things worse. Um, you might say it's a... the rotten core of the apple. <laughs> no. Oh, no, stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, let's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what is what is a, a bad chiropractor? Is just a wrestler, I guess? I don't... Uh, anyway, <laughs> like... <laughs> um, uh, like, anyway, so this is... Like, I was going mean, to... I think I said before we started recording, I, I don't really feel like I've got the all of the knowledge in my brain to give a, a blow by blow recounting of this clash of Titans mm. um, with uh, your mobile game at stake potentially. But uh, Marsh, do you want to do my job for me? Uh, well, let's see if I can get it in something like an order, whether it's the right one or not. Um, so, I mean, the background to this is obviously that if you sell anything on Apple's marketplace, they take 30% of any, transaction. I mean, this is true of Steam as well and a lot of other big marketplaces, but it's true of Apple. And that's whether you're buying a game or you're doing a microtransaction for a hat within it. I think subscriptions are less. Like I think I think mm. if you I think they only take fifteen percent for subscriptions, but in, in any case, they take a big chunk of your pie if you're selling anything on their marketplace. And Epic uh has a game you might have heard of it Fortnite, which is available on iDevices, and they are uh, it's free, but you can buy shit in it with their own currency, V Bucks, and you can buy V Bucks with real money. And of course, if you do this on the Apple device, then thirty percent of uh, whatever you pay to buy those V Bucks goes to Apple. Um, so Epic, in what might be considered a somewhat cheeky move, added an option to buy the <laughs> bucks directly from them. Uh, and not only directly from them, but with uh, passing on a 20% discount to uh, the users. Um, this is obviously forbidden by App Store policies. Uh, so App Apple then um, just banned Epic. Uh, I think uh, they didn't just ban the game. I think they suspended Epic's developer licenses <laughs> as a company, which is uh, maybe maybe a larger reaction than Epic were expecting. But nonetheless, Epic were then happy to sue Apple in exchange, uh, saying that it's sort of, I mean, it's just straight up uncompetitive to levy this mm. tax 
Uh, and there was a fun um, like element of drama to this, wasn't there? And the fact that they clearly uh, anticipated this response and had their yes. huge legal proceedings all ready to go the second it happened because they they made the decision, <laughs> you know, launched the update, Apple detected it, you know, that afternoon, and then immediately Epic released these huge lawsuits about uh, in response to it. And not just lawsuits, they also had a propaganda video ready to go, which now yeah. auto plays when you open Fortnite. And it's it's a bizarre thing. It, so it portrays Apple as Big Brother from George Orwell's totalitarian dystopia novel, uh, 1984, which is itself a parody. Not on 1984, but the their their propaganda video is a parody of Apple's own commercial from 1984, <laughs> in which it suggested that the Macintosh was going to break down the totalitarian order of personal computing. Um, uh, by having apparently an athletic-looking woman without a bra slinging a big hammer uh, at Big Brother. Um, it does feel anyway, like neither of them yeah. have read it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an interesting interesting situation. Uh, I mean, uh, so, I mean, so, on Epic's, to Epic's side, I mean, we cannot say that Epic are doing this out of the pure goodness of their hearts, because obviously they, they seek to... Right benefit but i mean they they do specify in the lawsuit that they aren't looking for any damages themselves or any preferential treatment this is basically just a big big the loudest honk that epic could issue in order to wake up legislators to what they see as uh you know a, a good opportunity to break up apple's uncompetitive monopoly um but also on the flip side of that it's probably not cool to propagandize to children as part of your mega million into corporate lawsuit, I would say. Um, mm. But it would be it's, cool if they won. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I think I think Apple were already in some fairly hot yeah. antitrust waters. Um, and the whole that mm. initial like salvo of doing that um, ability to buy V-Bucks directly from Epic felt like bait, basically. Like oh, yeah. the only action Apple could take against that would um demonstrate that they have a monopoly on that marketplace and the ability to take what could be perceived as anti-competitive action and it was kind of interesting when it first happened because it had that edge to it that like oh i don't think apple will rise to this because i mean bear in mind epic also did this to google as well um Mm -hmm. like um that it, it felt like this shot across the bow of both of those companies of like hey do something about this because if you do it'll prove It'll prove that these these antitrust kind of um, issues are grounded, and so that's what what surprised me was the severity then of Apple's reaction um, to absolutely lean in to the monopoly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Say like, well, mm. not 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 to not to play the PR game themselves at all, as far as I can tell, um, but to I, I think maybe try and make the weight of bad PR and player disappointment on Epic's side so great that they would have to capitulate because at the end of the day, the average Fortnite player is only going to know that the game doesn't work anymore, not that there's a, you know, an, a, 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 you know, an aspect of kind of, um, there's a, a fight for the soul of free market capitalism going on between two groups of people who will never not profit from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody know... Um... So if I play Fortnite on the Epic Store and I buy some V-Bucks there, obviously I'm doing that straight to Epic. And I could, if I then play on mobile, can't I spend those V-Bucks while I'm playing on mobile? Isn't it all one big account? 
don't know, but that sounds like it makes sense to me. So really, the thing that they're fighting for, like they, it's not like by people buying on iOS, they're locked into always giving 30% of everything they spend on Fortnite to Apple. They could already buy in-game stuff if they just did it on mm. a different platform and Apple would get none of that. And so what Epic have done has, is like offer a way to buy from Epic directly through the app that, that bypasses the App Store uh, money-wise. Right, yeah. So I think it's the thing. I think it's very hard. Like, the thing that is, I think, obviously there's an element of like propagandizing to children that's questionable the other side of just propagandizing this at all is i think i think it's very difficult to make the case for any large corporation but epic included to be the 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 good guys or the underdog mm. in this because when a company that you know we we saw today that um you know more and more game like epic exclusivity is a thing that they aggressively purchase that they um you know by favor for with by passing, um, by taking the hit on players' behalves, basically buying games for players from developers in order to secure a bit of a corner for themselves uh, against Steam and other digital distribution methods. Um, so they're very much engaged in this. And I think that means that any sort of uh, attempts by Epic to tackle other monopolies have less of a kind of monopolies are bad air to them and more of a, like, mum says it's my turn <laughs> like and so you know and I, and they would have to be proven wrong you know they would have to prove that wrong by demonstrating that epic dominance over a corner of of the games market would be meaningfully different um to valves or apples or googles or, or somebody else well I, I almost don't think they they need to do specifically that because their action will naturally set a precedent in law which would then enforce that across mm. any marketplace potentially i mean the weird thing is i don't like uh i, I feel like the the thing that they're going after which is the 30% cut isn't really the the part of apple's dominance which is the most troublesome Yes, it is expensive, but actually, to to me, it doesn't seem totally unjust that they have created a marketplace and you pay for access to that. Mm. Um, the problem is that they own everything around that too, such that they can force people to use that marketplace. So recently, they've been hijacking links to news outlets from your browser to funnel users to the App News Plus service instead. And that is fucking bad. That's dead bad. And, yeah. you know, the question is, will they then do that for other commerce sites like Amazon or subscriptions like Spotify, both of which have removed their apps from the store to avoid paying Apple's fees in the past? And that would be bad. That would be very uncompetitive because you'd be prohibiting people from actually using the internet freely uh, and forcing people to buy things through the Apple store, even if they are available via web browser. And increasingly, like in gaming, we're looking at a future where these behemothic platform holders offer subscription models of curated games and i th i think that uh, will be a rich place for them to exploit and uh, introduce incredibly uh destructive behaviors and you know the economic model that that proposes will certainly i mean certainly first benefiting a very lucky few developers but then i think quickly it will benefit very few at all as the platforms have a captive audience and they don't need to pay uh developers huge sums of money to for exclusivity 
And I think if Epic's lawsuit can just shake things up and, you know, well, maybe break things up and avoid that future, I think that would be a good thing, even if they haven't done it for any kind of altruistic reason. Mm. There's an aspect to this um, that's causing a lot of uh, ripples in in my world, um, uh, which is that Apple suspending Epic's developer accounts, it's not entirely clear what all the ramifications of that will be, but all of my friends who are making Unreal Engine games for iOS are suddenly extremely nervous because uh, if that if that keeps up, if that state of affairs doesn't change, Epic can't support the Unreal Engine on iOS. Like they literally are being denied access to do that, and uh, it doesn't sound like like what's happened would would make it you know uh, currently impossible to release an Unreal Engine game on iOS. Like I think that's still allowed. But if Epic can't develop and support the engine on that platform because they don't have developer accounts anymore, um, then it's unlikely to have a future. So a lot of developers are pretty nervous about that. Yeah, that would be that would be disastrous. <laughs> I wonder if that's one of the factors in Apple not necessarily being able to fully withdraw any kind of you know support for Epic simply because I, I got to imagine there's a fair few games in the pipe for Apple Arcade that are dependent on that technology right so yeah. but you know like are apple going to turn around and say like we're going to pay for the cost of moving you off that engine like yeah, yeah. and actually uh, apple are, are terrible at constantly requiring developers to do extra work on their games just to keep them working on ios you know that's what the reason i'm never going to make a mobile game is because every six months apple break it again and you've got to go and update it to the latest engine or whatever you know, if you mm. make an iOS game on Unity, on an old version of Unity, you know, five years ago, uh, not only will it be broken by an iOS update that you have to then fix, but you're going to have to upgrade your project to the new version of Unity because the old version of Unity doesn't support whatever weird bullshit I, Apple now need you to do. And they they do this on um, OS X as well, and which is a reason that my interest in supporting things on Mac has, has uh, plummeted because, again... <laughs> Uh, they they can just break your game out of nowhere and it's on you to fix it. And if you don't, then players are going to be understandably mad at you. And that's just a deal I don't want to be in. Um, right. So if they then also make it so that the engine itself can't be updated and to match their new weird requirements, then that really is a bad situation. So are we, are we rooting for anyone in this? Or is it just... <laughs> it, it's a bit of an alien versus predator, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh it's like when um uh ea went after uh who's the guy who protect, who was going was uh, oh that trademark troll trademark. um yeah tim oh uh, yes yeah it's probably best we don't remember his name yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> let's not try <laughs> and also he's very oh, litigious I I just, so. <laughs> yeah i did i did just remember his name but for the reason outlined above i i'm not gonna say it um, <laughs> but yeah, when EA went after him, it was like, I was rooting for EA there. I definitely wanted EA to win, but it was a bit like sort of the dragon fights the ogre. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Good old Dim Tanglel. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of impenetrable codes... Shall we uh, talk about a game that was briefly announced? Because we might as well, because that's technically what we do here. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, uh, the them, them big uh, Call of Duty boys are at it again. 
Oh no. I, I know. <laughs> and this time the the war men and their war doings uh will take place in the Cold War. Uh in the return of Call of Duty Black Ops. And that is the title of the game, but backwards. It's like Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. Um <laughs> It's getting to be a bit of a word salad, isn't it? It is. Um both what I have said and it. it <laughs> equally. <laughs> yes. Um there was a the uh, there was quite an effective they did quite an effective tease for this in in Warzone um, where very occasionally as you were just playing Call of Duty Warzone your screen would start to experience like old RGB monitor tearing and like VHS effects uh, like from the past you know that's I think that's honestly how you communicate like when we were growing up you communicated this take took place in the past through sepia or like you know a dream dreamy wibble and then than a scene in black and white or sepia. Now, I think you communicate it through the medium of physical media at all. Um, but this would happen and the game would get distorted and it would say, know your history um, very quickly. And that apparently is the tagline for this new, and uh, I think we can all agree, uh, extremely um, uh, relevant and brave um, Call of Duty game. Uh, Marsh, you, <laughs> you've seen the trailer as well, I think. I did, yes. Um, yeah, I, no doubt that uh, knowing one's history will prove inordinately valuable when assessing the qualities of uh, this new game. A core mm. gameplay mechanic, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, that's all of our duty to understand our history. Press F to remember history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, it invokes... Uh, it's, uh, I forget the name of the Russian defector that it's a, a video of it's primarily. It's Yuri Bezmanov. Thank you, yes. Um, he was a real man, and he said some real things, uh, many of which seem to have relevance to the current moment in terms of what Russia would do to destabilize the US. Um, and one can look at America's troubled current moment and see many of the things that he says um, just as a literally word for word in headlines in newspapers that are currently real, um, terrifyingly real. I think that gesture towards relevance will probably be as far as the game goes. I would be very surprised <laughs> mm. if it chooses to uh, scrutinize the current moment and apportion blame <laughs> for any of the things that are going on. Um, or draw any kind of line from the the, the Russian malfeasance that uh, is described in the trailer to uh, actual things that are currently happening, um, because you know mm, both sides really. Mm, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's it, what they want, isn't it? Yeah, they it, they love to have the the veneer of relevance, like the sort of flavor of it. They like to be like homeopathic political relevance. <laughs> like technically, yeah. there was once a drop of relevance in this. <laughs> We've diluted it over yeah. and over again, so it can't possibly actually upset you. Like Ubisoft cordial. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, maybe a Clancyan, a Clancyan kind of Ribena. Um, <laughs> the yeah, I think because I mean, obviously, like in its outline of of the notion of Russian active measures, the notion of, of slow demoralization and destabilization of the state for kind of pushing it over into crisis, there is no space given for either a turret level or a sniper level, um, both of which this will have. Um, it uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to be that, isn't it? It's going to be PMCs probably. It won't be either the Russians or the um, um, or the Americans. It'll be some kind of uh, 
proxy war malefactor yeah exactly so we're all going to be because either the uh, internet or money is bad or both um <laughs> I, I i think those are the safest enemies for uh a, a modern military shooter simply because they are expensive things that are largely conducted over the internet and therefore it's kind of a villain that lives at home um but i would say and it's interesting because like un- you know unironically i've just having a great time with Call of Duty Modern Warfare recently because Warzone is really, really good. And it's this big, daft kind of pretty, you know, uh, you know, big, daft open world shooter. I've spoken about it on the podcast before with loads of emergent qualities that I really like. And so I'm a bit sort of bemused that they're making another one because it feels like such a kind of, you know, like a, a service. The current Modern Warfare feels like such a kind of like a live service game with probably pretty long life ahead of it that, the return of the kind of like annual whatever it is now what biannual kind of call of duty cadence feels like something from a different era um so the notion that this will sort of arrive and presumably need to re- plug into warzone in some way or succeed it or something is all kind of weird to me is this actually set during the cold war or is it uh that this defector thing that he's talking about like the seeds were planted then and now it's going to be modern day well, I think all previous Black Ops games uh, have flitted back and forth between the current moment and uh, the past, right? Mm, yeah, the Assassin's Creed hamburger bun. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a cordial or a bun? What's going it's, on? You've got both. You have your, you've you've got a rapina and you've got a burger. Well, a chiropractor rubs your shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> and then tombstones you into the mat. Um... <laughs> Thanks, Tom Clancy um good yeah sure let's i mean that's that's that isn't it i think it's being like formally revealed next week so undoubtedly on the next podcast we can have even hotter thoughts than these um a game a different game that um exists it's the easiest one (laughs) um uh, that exists especially now is uh due process um which has been around for a long time yeah, this is a, a Crate and Crowbar perennial. I think we talked about it in like one of the earliest episodes of this podcast. Uh, Graham did because he had played it, um, and back then it looked it had characters that looked a bit like Minecraft people um, in a very white level. And the concept is it's a team based shooter, uh, asymmetric, where one team it's actually a lot like Rainbow Six Siege, and they're probably quite annoyed when Rainbow Six Siege came out. Mm. Um, because didn't, one didn't team we make that is... point when Six Siege was announced? Probably, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the sort of unique gimmick, uh, to me at least, is that before you actually fight, you are looking at a map of the level where you can see everything. And uh, I think both teams, but especially the attackers, are going to draw a plan of attack as they talk on voice chat about how it's going to work. And there's a video that they... Uh, when announcing this beta, they put up a video of some folks playing it, and um, it does successfully communicate kind of uh, why that's cool. Like they, these people have played a fair bit, I think, and just hearing like the sort of de facto team leader uh, say, "All right, Jones, you're going to run up here with a breaching shotgun, and you're going to go through there, while these two come around the back and breach from there. And if we see anyone down in this area, then you're going to do this, and if not, you're going to do that." Um, that kind of strategizing once you're into it seems like it's it's really fun um but yeah that that minecraft art style is gone that i think 
I got to assume much of this time has has been completely redoing the look of the game, and the new look is nice enough. I don't mm. really think it would have lost much with the Minecraft style. I have to say, like that was it was charming in a way because it was just so. Um, you know, the theme is a serious military situation. Um, and then the art style just being these very chunky people, there was something just amusing about that. And it just, and it doesn't, the game is going to be funny, right? It's not going to be mm. uh, great because it's so immersive. It's going to be great because hilarious mistakes happen. And for that, I'm not sure you needed a really, like, I mean, they haven't got hyper-realistic. They're still stylized, but it's, um, I think I, I described it as sort of like brink, but less so. It's just like yeah. stylized, but not very stylized. It's voxely, um, and I quite like that about it. It looks a little bit like um, it's in the same territory as what is the game I'm thinking of? Uh, it has the levels and things, sort of quadrilateral cowboyish, a bit like that level of detail. I think is that is that about right? Maybe less. Maybe less. Maybe more. Quadrilateral Cowboy has the the massive square heads, right? That's... Yeah, not not just the character designs, just the levels. Like they have that kind of like palette. I think right. maybe that's what's reminding me of it. Like, um, and so I think I, I I do like that they stuck with the cartoony sort of vibe for it. I think that's also a bit more of a, a bit of a more comfortable place for a um sort of team shooter with this kind of breach and clear vibe to live in. I think rather than sieges, kind of slightly more. I was going to say certainly more realistic, but you know Sam Fisher just showed up, so what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> kind of vibe. Um, the other thing is, so it's a, it's a beta test, like a limited access beta test that starts this weekend. But the game is available to, as at the time of recording this, available to buy on Steam for twenty pounds. Um, but is not out, but is not in early access, and is not listed on the store page or in search. <laughs> yeah, this is very weird. Um... I think that I've heard developer friends request this, which is they want to do a beta. They don't want to be in early access because they've seen horror stories of games launching early access in a state where it just doesn't really represent what the final game is going to be. And they get, you know, mullered for it. They get review, hmm. not review bombed, but just to get legitimate bad reviews. And the game never recovers from that. And then you're just kind of screwed forever. And so people have often asked, Valve, can we do like a limited beta thing where only a certain number of copies can be bought? We only want to give it to like, you know, 10,000 people or something. Um, and we don't want to this to be seen as our big public release, but we want to use Steam because Steam is super useful for, you know, getting everyone on the same version and everything and using their multiplayer features. And in the past, I've always heard Steam won't do that. Um, this seems like a halfway house where it's, it doesn't say early access on the store page and yet it's it's earlier than early access. It's you know a beta. Literally, it says on beta on the, their store page, um, on their home page. Sorry, and excluding it from search seems like a way of perhaps limiting how many people can get in on it. At the same time, though, there um, I forget what game did this, but somebody uh, discovered that they are testing a proper beta feature. Uh, I've long heard that they intended to sort of support this kind of thing, um, but. Uh, yeah, they they have recently like done some kind of limited test of a beta feature where only a certain number of people can get in on it. I don't know if that's a thing you buy or if that's only for sort of you know just giving it to your testers. Um, but yeah, this is a, a weird state. It's fun that um, this kind of quite substantial um, breach of Steam due process um, <laughs> is uh, yeah, that's the entire joke. 
<laughs> Nowhere to go from there, is there? <laughs> uh, um, that name really sounds different today, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. It's it's um again. I think this is another thing. It's got it's got like um one thing they also they've also done with the art styles. It's got very much like a cyberpunk vibe now. Like sort of you know the key art is like a towering mega city looming over the Statue of Liberty in the future, like that kind of thing. And so I, I, I presume they have gone through that process of like, well, I mean, for want of a better word, like we've made a game about cops and robbers because that was, it was a different thing to make a game with that as your, well, it wasn't a different thing, but it was certainly a different thing in terms of cultural awareness to make a game with that as your theme in 2013 or whenever or not what it was that Graham first played yeah. it than it is now. Does anyone know in Siege? I know that there's an attacker's team and a defender's team, and it's asymmetric like this. But do you know anything about the theming of it? Is it like it's, other defenders? They are, no, they're all Rainbow Six Angels. Um, it's, <laughs> like it's just that, like some of them are really not helping. Like I, like, I think it's the, um, <laughs> like I don't know if they've still got the levels with a hostage because that was very that was the very explicit like hostage situation theming. Yeah, mostly through the objectives. In with my to my mind, I haven't played Siege for a year or so. They changed it to being a lot more about like, um, you know, the kind of typical Counter Strike sort of type objectives, which are a little more abstract, but. It's still very much like a recognizable, like, you know, the, the levels are all based around, like, you know, sort of, you know, straight from the news cameras, kind of besieged locations, embassies and, you know, farmhouses that have played help, like host cults and, and those kinds of things, high rises and, and these kinds of things. Um, But yeah, they don't theme the, uh, there is no, like, I think, you know, the, the, defenders or the, the people being sieged are just other rainbow six operators that happen to be doing this particular thing <laughs> maybe it's training i don't know right wrong place so wrong they, time <laughs> we're just in yeah. the house we plan to breach and so well yeah. i guess we've got to fight now <laughs> right um so yeah they tried to get i mean it, it but it very much exists in that sort of like but the that's not the the terrorist hunt mode is not that at all it's it's terrorist hunt mode that's what it's called so you know <laughs> yep. and so, yeah uh, there, there it is there it is i'm looking forward to this i want to play it mm. seems good yeah i like the ui it's cool i like the doodling stage is is fun um yeah yeah cool good for them we should talk about some games that we have been playing um tom would you like to tell us about a game that is also voxel based uh is it i'm wrong i <laughs> I've been playing Risk of Rain 2, okay. uh, which um, is... Uh, so the original Risk of Rain was a, was just a side-on um, pixel art roguelike, uh, and Risk of Rain 2 is a first a third-person shooter um, in 3D. And it's been in early access for a long time. It just hit 1.0 in the last week or so. Um, and I played it once before, and I found it to be decent but i playing alone felt like i maybe wasn't doing it right like it was more designed for co-op because it is also a co-op game uh it has been a huge hit it sold like a million copies um and uh i felt like oh this is such a phenomenon and the, the experience i'm having with it is not 
uh, amazing. It's just sort of decent. Um, maybe I need to play it in co-op. And I also had to stop playing it because I could not find the fucking exits. Like the exit is like a dark gray plate on dark brown ground. And it does have a particle effect above it of these like red dots that are supposed to tell you where it is. And I don't know if this has changed since then, but I was just, it would usually be difficult to find it and sometimes be absurdly difficult to find it uh, to the point where I spent literally 30 minutes on one level just going around looking for the levels. Uh, sorry, looking for the exit. The levels are not procedurally generated, but the exit is randomly placed and the monsters spawn in randomly. And there are some kind of toggle on, toggle off type randomizations to the level where like this, this branch might be shut off sometimes and not other times. Um, but the exit is truly random and it can be in bizarre places. It can be half stuck in the wall or hidden under a bridge and stuff like that. Um, and I, I just had to stop playing because I'm like, I can't spend half an hour of my life just trying to figure out how to leave a level. <laughs> um, so yeah, Graham and I played it last weekend and um, uh, it was a lot better in co-op. Uh, and it also, I think the game has got a lot better since then. Um, and the exits are not as hard to find to me, at least. I think here's a total conjecture theory. My theory now is I've noticed certain visual effects don't scale with distance anymore. Uh, maybe this is always true and I just didn't notice it, but like the dots are always one pixel big, whether you're right up close to them or whether you're you know three kilometers away. And so that makes it easier to see those little sparks that show you where the exit is. Um, but uh, a lot of the, the game is kind of about unlocking characters. You start with this commando character who just basically has a gun and can do a forwards roll. <laughs> um, and then all the other characters are much more interesting. So there's the Huntress who has a bow and doesn't need to aim. She just always hits. Um, and she can sort of call down a rain of arrows and stuff. There's the one I was really excited to unlock was Acrid, who is a kind of um, beast who walks on uh, his hands and, and legs. And uh, in the first game, he was my favorite class because he would... He could leave like a trail of acid and he could also spread a disease to the, the enemies that, would, that would, they would then communicate to each other. Um, they would communicate the disease to each other. They didn't talk to each other. Um, and that was incredibly satisfying in the first game because both games really are about like, because enemies spawn in just on a timer. It has a kind of like a left for dead director type system um, and enemies, they don't come in as big a hordes as zombies do in left for dead, but they do just keep spawning in and when it gets intense you're looking at like um you know 30 40 enemies all in a really tight space and so in the first game it was incredibly satisfying to like lay down a, a streak of slime that is going to burn them all and the amount of damage it does you know it doesn't care how many people are on it it's just going to deal that damage to all of them and so when there's 45 enemies all standing in this acid pit you've created for them and you spread a disease to them and you're firing your special like spit thing that goes through them and poisons them uh it just has that efficiency thrill like oh my god i'm doing this so efficiently i'm just like my total damage output here is in the tens of thousands because i've just got everyone in the right place just where i want them and um clustering them up like that is, is super fun um I've, I've just unlocked him in the in Risk of Rain 2, and he's not as fun in 2 because you just can't replicate those mechanics in 3D. Like, I can create an, a patch of acid on the ground, and I do it with a big, like, Hulk leap type thing, which is sort of satisfying, but ultimately I'm not able to sort of funnel everybody all into this one place where I'm dealing damage to all of them all at once. Um, but luckily it's just got shitloads of, of heroes, all of whom have uh, completely different mechanics. 
Um, so like I say, Graham was playing Commando. I was playing uh, Engineer for most of the time, which is guy who can make two turrets. Um, and we, after we finished our first game, Graham had been dying a fair bit. And the thing that's surprising, because like I say, I, I kind of assumed that this game was designed for co-op and that I was sort of playing it wrong by playing a single player. Then when we play co-op and discovered if one of you dies, you can't revive them. They're just dead for the rest of the level. They'll come back at the start of the next huh. level, but you just have to finish the level without them. And that's annoying because they're bored and also because it's now very hard to complete the level without uh, the second player. And it's especially bad because this game is all about picking up these items that give you passive perks. Like you're just, every level you're picking up, you know, 15 of these. Um, and each one will be something like increases your attack speed or now you heal for the damage you do. Or now every time an enemy dies, they set fire to nearby enemies. And you just keep on finding these throughout the game. You'll end with literally like a hundred of them. Um, and they stack, you know, you can find multiple copies of the same ones. So you're kind of uh, specializing your build sometimes by intentionally getting loads of copies of the attack speed boost because that really works for your class. But if you're dead, you can't pick those up. And so the other player just has to hoover them all up and takes them all. And the next level, that player is more powerful, you're weaker. And so you're probably going to die again. And uh, Graham just kind of felt like he was falling behind the curve that way. When we finally both died, um, we looked at the stats and... Uh, Graham uh, noticed that he had like a fifth of the kills that I did. And I was thinking, oh, that's that's surprising. Uh, but I guess I've played this longer and, you know, I played the first one a lot and he didn't play that one. Uh, maybe I'm just that good. <laughs> and then we started a new game and we noticed as we we're selecting difficulty, there was like two markers on the difficulty selection. Huh. Um, and I was like, oh, when I started the last game, I was the host. So I set it to easy, uh, thinking that let's, <laughs> let's be... Uh, uh, put it on the easy setting so that uh, Graham can get used to it since he's new to the game. Uh, and it turns out that you're actually choosing the difficulty for yourself and not the other person. <laughs> Graham didn't do anything, so it stayed on medium for him. So he was playing on the hard difficulty the whole time and I was playing on the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cool that they support that. It would mm. be nice if they told you they supported that <laughs> because it's kind of hard to tell. Um, How does that but, manifest itself? Yeah. Does it mean that just enemies do more damage to Graham than they do to you? Well, I'm glad you asked because I've been reading the wiki a lot because uh, you kind of need to to figure out how to unlock the characters. It doesn't really tell you much about how to do that. And it's really specific stuff that you wouldn't stumble upon. Um, and the wiki is extremely in-depth. And it's that's how I know it has an AI director, for example, because they have sort of data mined it and figured out the exact formulas for when it spawns enemies and all this other stuff. And they also figured out that the way easy mode works is that you are given secretly an invisible item that's just like all those other passive items uh and it has these stats but you never see that you have it um and it does it reduces all damage you take by 70 just flat across the board um and then it also uh multiplies your natural health regeneration by 2.5 so 250 percent extra um or 150 extra i guess uh but a huge boost to it and so that can basically be happening to me without it happening to Graham and, and the world doesn't need to change. The enemies are the same. They have the same number of hit points. They, they're technically dealing the same amount of damage, but I'm just taking 70 less from every single hit. Um, and that health regen thing is, I think, a problem with the game um, because it has this weird pacing to it where Left 4 Dead is like, there's huge waves of zombies, then there's periods of quiet, and then another huge wave, and there's, you know, a tank shows up, and it's this massive spike in, in intensity and difficulty and everything. And this, although it has an AI director, it's much more flat. It's just there's always some enemies, and there's rarely a lot of enemies. 
and then every now and then sort of two mobs spawn at once and, and it gets a little bit overwhelming. And at the end of each level, you trigger this, this teleporter and while it charges, a boss will show up and um, a more intense wave of enemies show up, but not that much more intense. And the bosses aren't that scary until the final one. Uh, the end of level bosses are kind of fine. And it's, you especially, you just get so much more powerful. Like you, you're always leveling up and that just do, like makes your damage and health go up um, quite dramatically. Like you'll start the first level with 100 health. You'll probably finish this first level with 400 health. Um, and then on top of that, you're getting all these passive perks, which are kind of how you get ahead of the curve. And you get so many of those. And they just, they're doing so much all at once that you end up accumulating both a lot of passive damage. Like just as you're walking around, missiles are flying out of you. You have drones following around, shooting people. You, you know, pulse out an electric Nova every now and then. You're just doing damage all the time. And then also you are being healed all the time. There are so many items that give you some kind of like this one heals you all the time you do damage. This one, every time you kill somebody, they drop a healing orb. This one, every time you kill somebody, you drop a healing mushroom that creates an area of healing. And this one, if you stand still, then healing happens around you. And this one, uh, every time you take damage, after a delay, you'll heal. And that means you just have a huge amount of health incoming all the time. And I think it's a mistake because what that means is that in practice, you are just fine 95% of the time. And the other 5%, you just die out of nowhere. You're just immediately dead. So basically, while you are able to take any single hit, you are, you'll be fine because the health you lost doesn't mean anything. You'll be back in one second. Uh, and then as soon as you reach something that can take all of your health in one hit, the game is over immediately and you don't even know why it happened. It's just dead out of nowhere. Right. And that's probably a bit of an exaggeration. It probably isn't literally they're killing me in one hit. It's probably more like um, they're doing 80% of my health uh, as damage and something else hits me in that time. But the thing that's taking off 20% of my health, I'm used to just being able to walk through 10 of those without noticing it because I'm regenerating so fast. And it's a very weird pattern because the times when it's easy, obviously it feels too easy. You don't know you're anywhere close to, to failing. And then when you do fail, you don't have any time to do anything about it. It's You're just dead before you can react. Um, and I don't think this was true in the first game. I mean, obviously, we've been playing on easy a fair bit. So easy, this is especially true because your basic health regen is multiplied by 2.5 for some reason. That seems crazy. Um, and, uh, but even on medium, this is still true. Like I've been playing, now that I'm, I've got a bit better with it, I've unlocked every class. I've um, got more used to it. I've been playing on medium just as my default. And it's basically still true. Like the first level before you have any of these passive perks, yeah, if you lose half your health, you're going to have to like wait a while and try and avoid enemies for a bit and try and get that back. And that's kind of fun. I like doing that. But then by the end of level one, you've already got so much passive stuff going on that you're just going to heal all the time. And you will. it'll be much sooner before you hit that point where something can kill you in one or two hits. But that's still going to be how it goes. You'll be just be fine, 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 fine. Oh, immediately dead. Hmm. There is... All those passive perks, though, do uh, create some awesome um, builds and sort of tricks and uh, weird things. One of the most fun things in co-op that I hadn't thought about is that loot is not... Uh, uh, how do I phrase it? Loot is, is shared, basically, uh, so that when something drops, you've got to decide who's going to pick it up because only one of you can. Um, and 
that actually led to some really interesting discussions. Like it made Graham and I kind of think about our classes and how they were different and what who needed stuff most. Like he was just shooting stuff. So if there's something about attack rate, he should probably get it. If there's something about healing, I would get it because he's got a special item that converted all of his health into a shield and his shield regenerates naturally, but it doesn't count as health. And so anything that boosts your health now, I, uh, I should take that because it doesn't benefit him. Um, and that was kind of fun to like discuss those things. And, and sometimes it's just something that's good for both of you. And you're like, well, I took the last grade, so you should take this one. Or do you want to take that shop and I'll get this thing over here? Um, that's kind of cool. And then you find these cool synergies. So I, like I said, I was playing as the engineer with my two turrets. The absolute key to that class is that your turrets get every item you have. So if I have a thing that makes me, um, you know, ignite people when I shoot them, then my turrets also ignite people when I shoot them. If I have a thing that passively fires a missile every eight shot or something, they will passively fire a missile every eight shot. And one of the things I had was that if I stand still for two seconds, I heal every, everyone around me and myself. And that's mm. not usually a very useful one because you don't want to stand still for two seconds. But my turrets, <laughs> my turrets literally can't move. <laughs> so they are always standing still. And so they're always healing everything next to each other. And so I realized after I had that, A, I can stand on them and get that healing, you know, or I can just dip into it when I need it and back back out. Um, but also B, if I put them close enough, they now heal each other as well as healing themselves. So they're getting double the rate. And if I stand next to them then, I'm getting the double rate. And if I stand there for more than two seconds, I'm then giving them the healing rate. And the three of us are basically have this incredible like healing synergy where we're just gaining health at an absurd rate and nothing can touch us. I really like the the sound of the kind of quick build thing. Like that sounds, you know, really fun. It's interesting that, you know, oh, do you think that as you play more, you'll figure out like how you're supposed to interact with like sudden damage spikes or if it is just an issue with the game? I think you'll learn when to be scared, like, because that's mm. the thing you don't, the thing that makes it hard to learn is like, when you do die in one hit, I mean, it does tell you on the end screen, technically the name of the creature that killed you, but I don't know what the hell that means. I don't know what to look out for next time. Um, but I have learned that, for example, that every enemy, there's elite variants, which might be like fire variant or ice variant or electricity variant. The fire variants are the ones you've got to look out for. They have some crazy damage multiplier on them and they're the ones that kill you out of nowhere. So mm. I now know when you see, if it's just a regular enemy that's got the fire modifier on it, you can, you're probably fine. But if it's like a, a mini boss kind of thing and they, they have the fire uh, variant, then you need to be very careful not to take damage from them. Um, so I guess I'll learn more about that, but I still think it just shouldn't work that way. I just think if the game, if they just literally doubled your health and halved the rate of healing, then it'd be more interesting game. You'd have to think more, you'd have mm. more setbacks along the way that would have to cause you to change your strategy and stuff. I will say as you unlock the classes, the classes are kind of the, the soul of it really. And, um, it's really fun to just figure out what each one is about because they're usually a little bit counterintuitive. Like the one I really wanted, other than Acrid, which is that acid guy, um, the other one I really wanted was the grappling cook robot because obviously grappling cook. <laughs> um, and I got him and the grappling hook is nuts. I mean, a grappling hook in a, in a 3D game is always a bit nuts. Um, and this one, you're in these kind of quite open outdoor areas. And so there isn't a lot to grapple onto in the sky. But he has he can fire a drone that then hovers in place and electrocutes the nearby enemies. And you can grapple onto the drone. So basically you make your own grapple point. But then his grapple is not like, I don't know, when I think of grappling hooks, I think of swinging across gaps and sort of flinging myself um, 
into the air to, in some graceful arc. This one, you just kind of you grapple onto something and then you just bounce around like a like a I don't know subatomic particle. <laughs> You're just <laughs> going at insane speeds with no control at all and. That's a good thing to do because you're moving so fast, nothing can hit you. And it's a melee class. So while you're swinging, you can just be swinging your fists as well. If you happen to collide with something, you'll do some damage to it. <laughs> and all the while, they basically can't hurt you. Um, and it does... The thing that feels cool is if you... Um, uh, the counterintuitive thing... Sorry. The counterintuitive thing I realized is that his grappling hook is not really his mobility tool. His mobility tool is the fact that he can charge up a punch that then makes him lunge in that direction. And if you fully charge that, that takes you an enormous distance and it's incredibly powerful and it hits everything you pass through. And so what you really want to do is charge that up, get some enemy who's kind of above you and then launch at them. You'll hit them and everyone behind them and everyone in front of them and you'll launch yourself into the air. And then while you're in the air, you might grapple onto like a flying enemy and you're not going to be able to hit them very easily while you grappled onto them, but that swing might take you back into the fray and then you hit something else on your way in. And that feels uh, really cool and elegant. And each class kind of has something like that. Like there's the captain who has uh, a shotgun and a taser and then an airstrike. And the airstrike is the only thing that hits multiple enemies. Um, and it's very powerful, but it's on like a two or three second delay and in this game, things are moving pretty fast. It's really rare that you can be sure where someone's going to be in two or three seconds. But then you realize that um, the taser immobilizes people and it also interrupts them. And there's a certain kind of enemy that has like this, it's a big kind of stone golem kind of thing. And it, it hits you with a targeting laser. And then like one or two seconds later, it's going to do a big laser blast at you that will take off a lot of health. Um, when they, as soon as you see that targeting laser, you tase them to interrupt their attack, and then you call an airstrike on them because you know they can't move now that they're tased, and that has this really neat like synergy to it. And each class feels like it has those little tricks to it. Um, I've also unlocked a plant robot. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the concept is. It's somewhere between a plant and a robot, um, which is, I guess, the dream. Uh, and it can it can shoot a kind of like vine seed thing that it costs it health to fire it. But when it lands, it's going to shoot vines at everything nearby and pull. Um, I think I don't think it pulls them in. I think it locks them in place, and then it's going to leech health from them. And uh, it also has a little like air blast thing. Uh, you have a little air blast thing that weakens everything when it hits, but that also pushes them back. And so if you throw your vine thing down at like the the rearmost enemies, not at the ones directly in front of you, and catch all them in your vines. Then you use your weaken shunt thing to knock everyone else into the area. It will grab anyone else who, who goes into that zone. And then they're all locked in place. And then your third ability is one that is kind of like the airstrike. It's sort of some, it's like a mortar and it costs you health to fire it, but it does a lot of damage over an area. And of course, you just locked all these people in the same area and you're going to pay some health to hit them with this area effect attack. But all those vines are healing them. Um, sorry, all those vines are, are leeching them to heal you. And so you'll get that health back. But then if you kill them all, they're all dead. And so it's not leeching them anymore. And so you don't get the health back. So you've got to like, it's a great efficient attack that can take them all out potentially, but maybe you don't want to take them all out because you need some of them to leech health from. So yeah, it's, it's full of cool stuff like that. This question does not imply that I want this, but does the game have <laughs> law? Is there a reason for any of this happening? <laughs> yes, it does. Um, 
I don't know what it is because uh, there's like a codex. And so um, as you kill enemies, that like each enemy has a chance to drop the codex for that entry. Like not everyone in a species carries a textbook explaining what that species is, but one in every 50 does. <laughs> and so every now and then you, you kill a, a weird lizard man and he drops a book on lizard men. <laughs> and uh, you can go into the codex and read that. And it'll tell you like their health stats and all that. But then for a lot of these things, there's like a log entry that sort of be some kind of, definitely for all of the classes, there's a backstory to where they're from. The plant robot, I didn't read all of its log entry, but there was something about, I don't know, it's some fucking scientist doing a fucking experiment and it went loose, of course. <laughs> um, it's, its fiction has never really like made me feel I need to read any more of its fiction. Um, but again, I'm reading the wiki a lot because I need that to know how to unlock stuff. And I did discover that the boss, which is called the King of Nothing, uh, <laughs> is... Uh, there's uh, theories that he may be related to the boss of Risk of Rain 1, but honestly, I completed Risk of Rain 1, but I don't remember anything about who that boss was. Or, I mean, even even if that's true, I don't know what I'm supposed to get at. <laughs> like, I don't know who this fucker is. Like, it's just some guy at the end of the game and you, you, you fight him. Um, I will say the boss of Risk of Rain 2 is really fucking tedious. Um, it's got so many phases to it, and especially the first time you fight a boss you know you, you that thing where you you whittle down the health bar and you're thinking yeah i did it and then the new health bar pops up all right you do that once and i can tolerate it but that just happens so many times and you just get to the point where, oh fuck off i'm just done i'm just i don't have time in my life to do this uh, i have finally defeated him but uh and on the build that i defeated him it wasn't too time consuming but only because that build was insane and i was like to the point where the end of level bosses were literally dead in two seconds. They just spawned and just <laughs> melted by my two turrets that have all the perks in the world. And so if you're at that point with normal bosses, then sure, the final boss is defeatable in a feasible amount of time. It's not complete slog. You just set up your turrets and just like hide yourself on a high column and let the turrets do the work. And it it's not uh, too time consuming. But the differential in there in how tough that guy is versus how tough everything else is means that basically any build that's good for him is absurdly good for the rest of the game and everything else has been too easy until that point. I was going to try and proffer a caveat to the only allowed two health bars thing, which is I think you can get away with a third final boss health bar, but only if by that point you and everyone else involved is busted into space. <laughs> is this a like, bayonetta thing? I mean, it's a, a almost platformers thing. Like, I think you're allowed that, that, fight, that third go at Robotnik if you're in space. <laughs> But it, you really have to be like your mechanics have to have changed slightly. It has to be zero G or you're you're blowing in or something, and and you're in space like that. I'll, I'll accept that. But I'll say risk you. of rain goes um, goes further than three. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say exactly how many, but more yeah. than three. And I there's again I won't say what it is, but there it's a shame because there is one phase of that that bus fight that's really a nice idea, and it is sort of interesting to fight. Um, but it comes so late in it that you're just you're sick of it by that point. Hmm. I think you've sold me on it, although Risk of Rain Two sounds fun. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good roguelike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel like that's like more specific to say. Uh, I think I the fact that it's technically the same levels each time doesn't really hurt it, and the fact that it's just enemies kind of spawning all over the place, like that doesn't have to be interesting because the classes are interesting. It's all about the, 
the craft of learning your class. You, you get a character and then you figure out, okay, here are the four things and you try them all out and you get a feel for them. And then you, you really have to put some thought into, okay, but what does that mean? Like how, what am I intended to do with this? Is there some way that firing this one first and then firing this other one uh, lets me then use a third one in an interesting way? And each one will have a bit of finesse to it as well. Like there's a, another fucking robot. There's a lot of robots in this game. Um, uh, it's all about switching modes. And he has like one of his modes, he can fire like a, a spike that, that's like a railgun. And another one, he can, uh, it's a rapid fire shrapnel kind of thing, like an SMG style weapon. But even that SMG, the last round you fire, like when you release the fire button, the last round you fire will be a shotgun round. And that is quite powerful. But hmm. after you stop firing, it's a while before you can start firing again. And so you don't want to, and there's no limit to how much, how long a burst of fire can be. So you can SMG spray nonstop. But if you get, once you get the hang of like, okay, this guy's down to like a third of his health and it's a regular enemy. If I release now, that shotgun blast is going to be enough to kill him. And that will end the fight much sooner. And if I keep spraying, I'll definitely kill him, but it'll take a while. Um, and so there's that little mini game of figuring out when to release and when to uh, resume firing. And then although there's that delay before you can fire again, what if you switch to the railgun in that delay and now you're doing something with that downtime as well? And so there's all this little stuff to optimize that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I'm into that. Marsh. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Hello, mate. Do you want to talk about a game? Oh, do I? Um, I mean, really do you? Yeah, why not? I can talk okay. about um, a game called Family, uh, which is on Itch.io. It is Obra Dinn, but for late 80s uh, pop artists from London. Um, <laughs> there's, uh -huh. no, there's no mystery. Uh, there's no kind of like premise. There's no, you're not solving a murder or anything like that. You simply have like this family tree of bands, fictional bands, and... Uh, you just have to work out what the names of all the members of those bands are based on <laughs> the information that you get from fake news clippings, um, their own uh, sort of like songs themselves, because obviously you can tell if a vocalist is the same vocalist from two different bands because they move from one to the other. Um, and uh, there's also a live in inverted commas radio show playing which plays all of their tunes and the the host of the radio show talks a little bit about the bands as he's introducing them and also interviews a guest and from all these different things you can kind of piece together the sort of uh, turbulent history of this uh, supposed scene uh, of the late 80s and early 90s in uh, London pop um it's just a UI game, basically. There's no kind of 3D environment for you to move through. It's just a bunch of menus and some descriptions. And it's great. Like, there's uh, that, <laughs> that, the Obradin format of, of an information game, uh, which uh, confirms your success on identifying five people correctly at a time, is just a really good format that is apparently very easily transposed into completely different contexts uh, and very successfully. <laughs> And um, yeah, I spent a, a very pleasant evening. I didn't particularly love the music, uh, which is, I, I assume, all, all composed specifically for this. Um, but uh, the just the act of sort of like working out, you know, uh, through an oblique reference to somebody flipping out over a non-vegan sandwich, 
you can work out, you know, where that they end up, you know, playing a PETA, a, a PETA concert later. You know, these these kind of little details. You know, uh, another another round of find Morrissey ends in triumph. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, can you say any more about how what kind of deductions you're making? Other like that vegan sandwich thing sounds interesting, but what else? It seems like you. That, what do you have to go on, basically? Well, I mean, so uh, in terms of news clippings, you hear that maybe, you know, uh, one of the band's uh, band members has fallen out and uh, they'll now be picking up a different instrument when they join this this duet or something like this. And you can work out from that based on uh, m- maybe the, even the sound of the, the vocalist that they've been paired with, that that's... Uh, that's a duet that's referred to elsewhere and you can work out i mean you i'm not explaining that was a terrible explanation (laughs) (laughs) no i think i followed it there's information and you read it (laughs) there you go (laughs) ah okay i got it (laughs) is there a kraken uh no (laughs) not so um there are lots of references to muffins but that's, hmm. I think that's as close as you get to a Kraken. <laughs> as close to a Kraken. I would say a muffin is the opposite of a Kraken. <laughs> All right, Pip. We already had this with lemons. <laughs> when so, life gives you Krakens, they're actually, get they're actually muffins. <laughs> I don't know. That's what my grandma used to say. <laughs> I think that would be the, a cute subtitle for a Obra Dinn. Like... <laughs> <laughs> So, how much original music does it have? Because it sounds like a lot. Um, there's about eight tracks, I think. Oh, maybe that's seven. Not that much. <laughs> seven, eight, and they're all truncated as well. So you don't, you don't. Uh, they're not like full three minute pop songs. They're more like 30, 40 seconds, um, mm. which is good because I, <laughs> I didn't like listening to them. Um, the, uh, the 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 only problem, uh, I mean, it, it isn't kind of like as uh, well. Uh, uh, tested, I would say, as Oprah did. It doesn't have that kind of budget, um, so it feels a kind of a bit rougher. Some of the deductions you make find feel a bit kind of sludgier, and there's no way to scrub through the radio show. So you basically have to listen to it on loop until you get to the part where mm-hmm. it's referencing the thing that you wanted to hear again. Unless you transcribed it all very rapidly the first time round, you have to listen to it over and over again, which is kind of annoying. Um, but yeah, a cool little game. Cool. Did you finish it all in one setting? Did you say? Yeah. Or? Yeah. 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 Only a couple of hours. Can't remember how long. With um, if it's, I don't know how many you know bands there are, or whatever, but like obviously the thing with something like Oberdin is, like the search space has to be a sufficient size to prevent you from just brooting it. Mm. Um. How, how how does this handle that, or is it just simply enough to guess that you couldn't reasonably brute force it? Well, it, it um. It feeds you information in little chunks, so there's parts of it which, which are basically unguessable, um, uh, and and only once you've unlocked a, like a complete set of band members does it then feed you extra news clippings. Um, so there are some mm. deductions that you just can't really make, and there's enough names in the roster for you not just to be able to plug them in. Um, and the fact that often musicians uh, will switch instrument when they're moving between bands does make it slightly trickier, so you can't just, just make make basic assumptions and fill out an entire tree can't um, make basis assumptions <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, is there any narrative framing for why why are you doing this and why is it a mystery in the first place? No, no, there's none. <laughs> it's, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, it's kind of refreshingly just, this is a game, <laughs> have at you. Maybe it's like, you're on a date. You've just said um, that you love the pop and, and a lot the pop music of like 80s London and then your date has just gone to the loo and you don't know anything about it <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to piece together a kind of robust working knowledge by the time they return <laughs> oh maybe you're Sean Ryder and you've just literally forgotten all of the 80s because of drugs <laughs> 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 that, that's actually really good they should do that <laughs> anyway what have you been playing chris um so i i have been having experiences in uh, microsoft flight simulator mm. which was the other kind of big release of the week and uh i think you know i think everyone's been playing a, a little bit um partly because it's uh, available through microsoft game pass um which makes yeah, it, it crazy. absurd value given that it's a you know a 55 pound game and like a hundred pounds if you want Heathrow, which needles me slightly because I kind of do, but do I? Anyway, so surely I, a world I was, without Heathrow is is a good thing. I don't know. I, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. I came to this game um, ready to be a bit emotional. I think because I miss traveling desperately, and I miss yeah. getting out and seeing the world. And and I have like I think. Um, planes and, tra- and plane travel generally is quite a kind of evocative thing for me and not just because you you're more emotional when you're in the sky which is a fact um but because um you know that sense of other places seeing them out the window watching the world roll past beneath you um all of that is quite powerful and because this game the, one of the great innovations of this in addition to just modern technology in a lot of different ways is um a scale recreation of the entire planet earth um based on uh sort of an algorithm generated um depictions of towns but to a level of detail i don't think it's ever been done before in, in, a, in a simulation like this uh, it certainly doesn't stand up to, to close uh, analysis but we can get to that but you know very very impressive technically and and like i said i mean maybe this is too much information i sometimes get a bit sort of uh, verklempt looking at Google Maps too long. Like, mm. if I look at a map of a faraway place I used to live or have been, I get a bit like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be there? And so I was ready to load up Flight Simulator and kind of, um, as a bit of a lockdown treat, just take myself on a few journeys and um, and and take myself back to a period in my life where international travel was a fairly regular part of it. That's not quite what happened, at least initially. What happened was I was taken back in time a lot further. The monkey's paw curled basically really dramatically <laughs> and my wish to be transported back to a time where uh that simply wasn't this year um uh, delivered me to like 1998 and the experience of uneasily wishing and hoping that some like f-15 flight simulator will run on my dad's computer like that sort of sense of like, there's a million reasons why this probably isn't going to happen. So don't get your hopes up, but you've got the joystick ready. And if it does work, it'll be absolutely transporting and amazing. But it is going to take 15 to 25 minutes to load, which is proportionally much more of your life when you're 10. Um, and and you're just going to have to wait. And maybe it's going to crash and you have to start the whole thing again. 
and maybe you're just going to have to wait a lot longer, and then maybe you'll load it, and it's just not going to run very well, and you'll eat whatever kind of scraps of that dream are left after they've been fed through the like through the Microsoft Windows um, paper shredder of dreams. Um, and you'll <laughs> gather up the, 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 the fragments and try and reassemble the picture that maybe once could have been. Uh, that was my experience with the new Microsoft Simulator. A profoundly wonky piece of software. And that was the thing that really surprised me about mm-hmm. it, that um, it just feels very ropey. And I, I've, I admit, like an aging PC now, I think I would call it mid-range. And I didn't expect it to be perfect, but I expected the experience to be slick. I think, I think part of me was expecting a kind of, mm. you know, modern uh, a modern sense of polish and presentation on top of what i would expect to ultimately be a very granular and simulatory sim which would necessarily come with some complexity um but the you know just stuff like having to run it as an administrator where it just simply wouldn't load which is still the case um the fact that it loads a installer that then can't be uh, you know has to run in the background to install the game with permanent um, chill music um, as it downloads 90 gig. Uh, so it took me all night to get it downloaded. Like all of those experiences and then loading into its tutorial system for the first time, which is like learn to fly thing. And then having this horrible experience with the first 30 seconds to a minute of a lady telling me about airplanes, be the audio cutting in and out constantly. And it take maybe a two minutes to settle down and settle into a playable frame rate with not this choppiness and all the rest of it, and then be fine, weirdly, to the fact that the tutorials, they follow potentially a logical order of some kind. Do they? What they, what they don't... <laughs> well, maybe in terms of... I could understand someone writing down the information they think is essential, starting with fundamentals like camera controls and then building through into, like, um, you know, how to operate an aircraft. And the tutorial has to do double duty as how to operate the game and how to actually fly an aircraft because it is a realistic simulator or it can be. But at no point in that process was the player, I think, considered in terms of what the player wants. What the player <laughs> wants is to learn how to fly an aeroplane so that they can <laughs> yeah. fly an aeroplane. And, and what they would like to have is the experience and the excitement of flying an aeroplane. And... I th- there's something in there's something interesting like um so i had this experience so the first tutorial puts you in a plane that's in the sky straight away and your invisible co-pilot instructor um it, uh, she said she um it loads in and like it shows you this panning shot of the plane and there are two identical women sat in it in the cessna uh completely identical expressionless women and then you are one of those women but you're invisible now and so is the other woman and she speaks to you in your mind to tell you about rudders and, and ailerons and flaps and things. But then that's irrelevant because what she wants you to do is learn how to save and recall a key binding for setting a custom camera angle. And I don't don't care about that. <laughs> I, I like and I don't I don't care. And why is this why is this a gate I have to pass through on the rest of, to, on the way to the rest of this tutorial experience? And then. So the whole thing is immediately very like, is this actually going to be, is that actually going to be fun? And I'm already, um, the, 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 the calming music has given way to this sense of, of continuous dread that it's going to break at any moment, or it's going to ask me to 
try and find a key binding that I don't know, or to put my gamepad down to do like control shift E to switch the engine off or like yeah, some other yeah. sufficiently intuitive thing. What do, what are you using to control it? Sorry. This gamepad, is... keyboard and mouse. Um, what, what kind of gamepad? <laughs> yeah. Um, a, X, an Xbox 360 right, controller. Right. Yeah. Well, that, we've, we've all had the same experience in, in this case. Yeah. Of it just like, uh, yep. I guess. And, um, and it has this weird, um, you know, well, that's that's a that's a weird vibe. And then, inexplicably, at the end of that first tutorial, the instructor just makes an offhand reference to um, keeping, you know, keeping an eye out around the plane because there might be a duck. And I don't, <laughs> I don't. I, so, people who've listened to this podcast or indeed seen its merch will know that very very early, <laughs> like seven years ago, <laughs> I told a story on this podcast about an interview I had done with the uh, developer, the lead developer of X-Plane, um, which is another really, very realistic flight simulator. And this interview was conducted in like 2011, 2012, I think. I think it was 2011. So almost 10 years ago, where he told me a very specific story about he was building a, and apologies, people will have heard the story before they've listened to the podcast for a long time, but he was building a, a, a tool for the iPad that would plug into uh, a ship's uh, system, a ship, fuck, I, I've spent too much time pretending to be a Star Wars man a planes systems um in order to let you to press a button to land at the nearest airport in an emergency and when i pressed him for what kind of emergency would permit this he's like a bird strike where a where a duck comes through the window of your plane you're covered in blood and glass and you've just got time to reach graspingly for your ipad um to <laughs> um to to get it to land the plane for you and uh, this is a funny story uh, like it, it still makes me laugh but the fact that the the wind like this is the only danger the only kind of flight danger that has been introduced to me in microsoft flight simulator it's the only time it is acknowledged that it is dangerous to be in the sky in any way and the fact that it said it it's either a direct attack at me <laughs> like it, <laughs> it's either targeted to unnerve mm. me because now not only am i nervous about the game breaking or it suddenly requiring me to tr- grasp for some key binding that's very unintuitively uh accessible through the menu um but also the sense that why would you say that if there can't be a bird strike but i don't think there can be a bird strike because i barely ever see any birds but the birds are them... um simulated in the game shit really yeah I don't know if they oh, if no. they, if they can interact with your craft, but I mean they certainly there's certainly models that fly around. Then why did she tell me to look out for birds? Why was the first why was the first tutorial? Here's how you set a permanent camera angle located behind the plane and slightly to the left. And also, by the way, don't get killed by a duck while you're up here. I loaded this game <laughs> to relax. <laughs> and I have you flown over your house yet? All- because you'll yeah. probably see there's like a giant column of seagulls just above your house. <laughs> right. And I was like, but I was like, is, is it, you know, maybe if there are any pilots, listening to this, I would love to know if a bird strike is such a prevalent thing that it warrants being raised in the very first tutorial. It's otherwise relaxing game. The other thing I would note is um, the music, I think, sounds like you're in the waiting room for death. <laughs> um you're in like it's 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 sort of purgatorial and it's um like uh well it's exactly what you think it is it's 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 a it's an install shield wizard djing a party like it's 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 the most anodyne like windows thing and then the exciting thing when you crash and the first time i crashed it was because i um having unpaused 
um, spiraled out of control and descended into the ground just outside Keensham. Um, the first time I crashed, it, it I, I was curious about what these games do because they never really simulate the crashes themselves for good reason. Uh, it, I don't know if you've seen it. It goes, it sort of goes to black suddenly, but they wanted to put a little bit more on it than than they did previously. So there's a sort of like kind of bassy kind of boom. That doesn't happen for me. Really? Yeah, I just land and bounce around, and then I'm on the ground. Huh. Because all the videos I'd seen, yeah, it cuts to black. And then um, I accidentally landed on my parents' house. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I just ended up in uh, in the neighbor's garage. Was, uh, I couldn't Weird. take off again. Yeah. But we, we should uh, uh, just briefly say for a moment why you fell out of the sky after pausing there, which is mm. that while the game does pause, um, it doesn't pause the simulation of your airspeed. So that in when you're paused... Um, everything else is is still, but your airspeed velocity is slowly dropping to nil, so that when you come out of pause, you will just drop like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it was the other great thing, which is it's extremely sensitive analog sticks. So not only in yes. trying to correct that, I sent myself into like a dead spin and plonked directly into the ground with this like sort of quite final feeling boom, and then the slow return of that um, music was a strange mm. feeling like oh yeah no i'm passing through to the other side now um so do you just respawn <laughs> what's meant to happen i the simulation is over but so i want to give the right. experience i had so um i um i gave up on the tutorial for like the first two one thing is i've played enough flight simulators in my life that i actually can t take off like without needing to know kind of the specifics of a given sim uh, which isn't a lot but like to understand how throttle works and you know, um, how to taxi down runway and then that kind of thing. And so I was like, I'm not going to bother with this. I'm just going to pick a little plane and I'm going to take off from Bristol and I'm going to fly, you know, follow the roads that I know and, and fly to Bath. And um, that was when it got me, I think. I, you know, I took off and dealt with some of the jank and the, the occasional crashes. Um, took off in my little um, twin-seater, uh, you know, prop and... Started cruising across uh, uh, cities and, and and roads and towns that I know extremely well, and that's when the fidelity of its simulation or its world particularly really got me. Like the fact that you see little trucks and cars on the roads, and you go too close, they're not very convincing. But at that point, I did sort of sink into it, and then I found myself past pressing through that to like a different kind of anxiety, which was more like a kind of like dream about uh, having like doing a driving test. It was like, oh, God, I shouldn't be up here. Um, I flew to Bath and I found my own house and I buzzed it. And a little, I, my my office is in the loft and the skylight and a little part of me was like, am I outside as well? Like, I've had a weird experience with this, <laughs> like half expecting it because it matches through, you know, through GPS data and weather data and satellite data. It matches the time of day and the weather where you are. It, it will know what planes are in the air. So that's potentially a weird, weird thing to interact with. Um. And then I had this weird experience of like needing to put the plane down because I was cruising over Bath and buzzed the old office and then up to the Royal Crescent and then back around over our houses. And I found where you live, Marsh, and, you know, off over to where, past where you used to live, Tom. And then I was like, I've got to put this plane down. What's the nearest airstrip? And it turns out there's a little grass airstrip over the river in, in um, Saltford. And so I, I put the plane down, but I didn't know what button the brakes were. And that is where it gets into this weird dreamlike territory for me, where it's like, I actually genuinely don't know where the brakes are on this plane. 
So I'm just bumping along the grass and I've landed it, but I go straight over a road and into some bushes which don't have clipping. And I managed, I put the handbrake on and just turn the plane and managed to stop it and switch the engine off. And the whole thing was this experience of like, well, I'm probably going to get fined, but I have lived. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, and it was very immersive. I felt very immersed in that like little terror. And, um, but it wasn't the emotional journey I was expecting to go on with with this flight simulator. I'd like to go back to it. I, I wish it ran better. I wish it loaded faster. Yeah. And I, I, I am having for the first time in, again, maybe 10, 15 years, that feeling of like, this is a game for my next computer. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's an extraordinary technical thing. I, It seems like such a missed opportunity to not bring more people in by just simply making something more technically accessible and easier to have fun with straight away supporting the xbox pad properly yeah. would be a good start i think i mean it's microsoft's own pads yeah. and it just doesn't really work um, yeah which is which is sad i mean basically it's unplayable i i think for me with my xbox pad i would have been very upset if i'd spent you know 100 pounds on heathrow and you know just my pad in its resting state causes the uh the plane to splash around and flail i mean that's that's just not that's yeah. not cricket it's flying a plane. <laughs> I've I've had a, a weird experience with it too, for many of the same reasons. Uh, tutorial, fucking hell! That yeah, the literally the I think it's the third thing they teach you is how to hold Control Alt and One to save a custom camera angle. And you're just like, what? A, I can't do that on GamePad, and B, what the fuck are you talking about? Can I fly the plane, please? So I just gave up on that, and I went to the main thing I wanted it for was to. Um, uh, you know, I just moved to Vancouver and I want to fly around the mountains here because I see mountains from the city and they look amazing. And I like if I try on Google Maps to figure out what am I looking at here? Which one is that mountain? Like, um, and is this one behind it? Is that like way behind it or is it only just behind it? Um, and what's it called? And what is the landscape over there like? And just the idea of flying over that seemed really cool. And I've done that. It was really easy. Like I, I abandoned the tutorial. I realized it wasn't interested in actually teaching me anything I wanted to know. So I just tried a free flight and with maximum assist on. Um, so it's the least complicated version. And actually it was, it was able to take off all right. I did, I fell foul slightly of this by, uh, now, I, did I completely misread this or is this just different for ground versus flying? But I thought it was telling me when I was taking off that I needed to hold the triggers to like, it seemed like left trigger would, would sort of propel my left wheel and right trigger propel my right wheel. So I needed to hold them both to go forwards in a straight line. Cause if I didn't, I would just veer wildly. Um, anyway, I, I internalized that lesson wrongly <laughs> and uh, thought that that was how flight worked as well. And was using those to like, Oh, I've got to hold them like both all the time to go forwards. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that didn't seem to work. And so then I thought, Oh, maybe it's just like left is, is decelerate and right is accelerate. And I tried that and that seemed to, it, it was close enough. The effect I saw was close enough to what I expected that I thought that was how it worked, and it's not at all. What that actually does is change your flap at the back to the steer rudder, right? in, yeah. in a different direction. Yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, I uh, so I had a lot of difficulty just with basic flying, and then I finally did get the hang of it and realized what I was doing and figured out how to just go on a straight line without having to hold multiple things to <laughs> counteract all the weird imbalances that were going on. And I got over the mountains. The mountains are amazing. They look a bit weird i am i actually put it on max i think my, my machine is fairly good um it defaulted it detected that i should be playing on high but i thought fuck it i want to see what ultra looks like and it's running all right on ultra it's the mountains 
when you get close enough, I mean, the, the thing that's remarkable and impressive is that it, it is the right terrain and just so at a distance, it looks incredible because that it, there's a particular, you know, quality to the um, terrain of real mountains that video games rarely capture. And uh, that looks amazing. And also just knowing it is real and knowing that I, I can go there in like, you know, an hour if I wanted to um, is amazing. Man, I had the real life version of you see that mountain, you can go there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, if, if you get too close, you like, it's not just that you see that the individual trees are sort of, you know, a copy and paste. It's that the, the ground underneath the tree is neon green. <laughs> and so it doesn't match the color at all. Um, but actually the main thing I took away from it was just like, I'm flying over this, this train does look amazing, but I just sort of wish the plane wasn't here. Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just want like a free cam over these mountains. I'm not interested in the flying part at all. I don't want to control this thing. It's annoying. I have to do a bunch of stuff just to keep it going. I keep, it keeps saying, oh no, you're going too fast. You're going too fast. And then I slow down. It's like, oh, you're stalling, you're stalling, you're stalling. Um, and I just kind of want, like, I just want to be the eagle from Assassin's Creed. <laughs> like, that was my ideal drone. flight experience. So I just. I think you can be oh, a yeah? drone. Yeah. Oh, that could be good. That's the next best thing to being an eagle. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. God, that Sorry, go that makes uh, that makes me realize there's probably going to be a, an Assassin's Creed where the eagle is replaced with a drone, right? <laughs> well, wasn't the wasn't the Assassin's Creed eagle the drone from Ghost Recon Wildlands? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. I think it was basically exactly. I mean, the there's same. also the owl from from Far Cry Primal. Yeah. Which which came first, the Far Cry Primal psychic owl <laughs> or the drone from Ghost Recon Wildlands? I'm I'm definitely with you on on kind of wanting Flight Sim mostly for its extremely high res Google Earthness, and then having to fly, learn like having to fly a plane to get at that is I do find it compelling. There is something about it that's that's really nice. I do want. I just want it to feel comfortable to kind of sink into i think yeah um mm. you know the fact that my first sort of comfortable experience with it was also this weird stress dream about crashing a you know little plane outside my house was incidental i think in that i can move past that and it's actually a sign that it's succeeding in some ways but yeah i mean i appreciate that these projects always start rough but i don't know what i was about to say is what i was about to say was you'd think that, you know, coming from a company with Microsoft's resources, that this piece of software would be really good out of the gate. And then I realized what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I've realized that it's dumb. And so I, I said it anyway, but in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I find that um, I, I, I think there's a game I could really enjoy there. Uh, there's too many barriers for me at the moment with the way that the, the controls uh, aren't, aren't properly operable. But um, I do, like you say, I just want it for the kind of the sightseeing thing. I don't really have any interest in taking off and landing. There is something aesthetically pleasing about, you know, the cockpit being physically bottled and that's mm. that's nice. But really, I just want to to, to zoom past things and look at them and uh, in fact it, you know I, I kind of already do that in google earth like this is just a, a unpleasant pastime is because i'm currently separated from my partner she's on another continent due to covid 
sometimes we just uh, we just pick a place on Google Maps and we walk around it <laughs> like we're like we're tourists, <laughs> and it's actually uh, it's a really pleasant way to spend time and explore a place that we would otherwise never go to. And I kind of just think that's better right now for what I want <laughs> than um, the Microsoft Flight Simulator. Although I can't, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, although flying is its own sort of tactile pleasure, or could be. Yeah, if it wasn't for fucking birds. <laughs> yeah, there's elephants in it as well, Chris. Really? Yeah, <laughs> I, imagine, imagine one of those coming through your cockpit. <laughs> fucking terrifying. <laughs> Won't get the iPad then. <laughs> uh, good. Shall we do some questions from questions? Hell yes. Hell yes. Yeah. Ugh. Mm. <clears throat> Mike. <laughs> right. Sorry. I thought you... Ah, never mind. <laughs> I thought that was, quite a... that was quite a guttural affirmation from you, Tom, and I thought I would match it, but all I did was go, uh And so I needed... I needed, so I needed to style it out by making it sound like I was, like, doing a bit where I cleared my throat before doing questions, but it was too slow. I don't um, know. I think you got away with it. <laughs> this is a lot like my... <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to notice. This is a lot like my landing in that grass airstrip outside of Saltford, where um, I didn't know where the brakes were. And I just bounced into some hedges, <laughs> uh, put the handbrake on, the parking brake. Anyway, anyway, Mike, Mike writes, Hi, care packages and frying pads. In episode 336, Chris made what I consider to be the absolutely outrageous statement that no one in the history of Battle Royale has ever wanted to hang around and watch to the end of a match. As somebody who many times in my thousands of hours of PUBG has used last minutes of a match after my usually ignominious elimination to decompress and cheer on or blagged my murderer's continued existence depending on how deserving I judge them to be, I feel slighted. Am I truly that out of step with the youth of today? Is there really no one else who needs that little space to recover one sense of worth after a disgraceful blunder around a blind corner or a shaky mag dump that creates a murderer-shaped outline on the wall without a single round finding their target? Please tell me that I'm not alone. Keep on keeping on. Mike. I have only the most limited experience of Battle Royales in that I've only played PUBG and I think only twice. But I think one of those times I did this. I think I did stick around to watch... I remember being delighted that I didn't have to. Like, it's great that I can just leave and find a new game and uh, I'm not stuck with these people. Um, but it's also nice that you can watch. And I think, I don't remember if this is what I did, but I imagine it's somewhat satisfying to do like a vengeance watch where whoever killed you, you just watch them until they die. And then you can move on. Well, I mean, I guess congratulations to Mike. There are two of you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I just see it as too much of an easy convenience. I would like to play again, thank you. And I, uh, I don't, I don't care for um, the advent further adventures of some guy who shot me. So I'll leave. <laughs> also, in the case of um, Warzone, I didn't want to spoil the little ending cutscene, so I wouldn't watch because you get a little cutscene where you fly away in a helicopter with your friends. It's nice, <laughs> and it would be spoilers to see it without winning. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Like, I know that this makes me sound weird. All right, write in if you're one of the other people who feels like that's a spoiler. So I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, Marsh, what's your uh, skip cadence? 
Never done it, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I mean, I've never observed a match post-death of, yeah. certainly not of a battle royale. That world is dead to me the second the bullet passes through my head. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like a uh, flight simulator. It's just over. <laughs> David writes, <laughs> I've recently finished mucking my way through making a goblin name generator in Game Maker. I tried to link it, but your spam filter is extremely vigilant. Um, he, he writes, just good harvestmen, a reasonable number of goblin names. And I don't know what that sentence means. <laughs> is good harvestman a autocorrect for something? And if so, what? This might be the first question of two questions in this email. Um, but I'm fascinated by this because I don't know what that could possibly be. Harvestmen are good, though. I mean, they do reduce your wood lice population, which is a pressing concern in this house as well. You know, Christopher. Yeah, I do. But I always assumed that was because you were their herald um, <laughs> here to shepherd them to a safer place on Earth. And, and They've stopped I... doing my bidding. They've oh, stopped. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I mean, to be fair, I went, I was walking across. Uh, we, I didn't, I don't think I truly appreciated how many wood lice there are in your house until I moved to a different house. And I was like, wow, <laughs> there aren't any wood lice. Um, and then, <laughs> um, but then uh, last week when I was cleaning up, the, just a huge one, like thumb-sized big boy wibbling his way across the uh, dining room floor. And I scooped him up on a little piece of paper and uh, chucked him out of the window and then he landed on his back on the window ledge and didn't seem to be able to get back up. So I had to go outside and scoop him up onto his front and then punt him into a bush. Anyway. Uh, I just thought you'd appreciate that, Marsh, because at least one of your one of your um, minions pastimes. Is... Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, David continues. This project, the Goblin Name Generator, helped me in rig in reinvigorate my fledgling efforts at coding and gave me an excuse to indulge my immaturity. I'd find myself hunched over my laptop late at night, giggling at names like Fart Sack Old Groin, Grump Lump Grump Snack, and Half Sack Fart Scab. <laughs> Tag yourself. Tag yourself. I'm half sad fart scab. Well, um, well uh, my kids slept. At this point, I've made my peace with the fact that in some ways I haven't advanced beyond the age of 12. What are some things in games that tickle your funny bone that you really shouldn't find amusing at your age? Take care, David. I don't have an answer to that question, but I do love name generators and uh, I especially love, I think they're great for, for comedy because they will ignore rules that a human might feel obliged to obey. Mm. Like, I can't remember what the, the middle one of those names was, but it sort of repeats the same syllable multiple times. It was Grump Lump Grump Snack. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> Which is like a human writer might think you can't just use Grump again in the surname, but the algorithm knows better. Um, we uh, obviously had a name generator and heat signature, and it's uh, people liked it. I remember, I think um, uh, Austin Walker and Jack DeKeat, um, uh, my friends who do Friends at the Table, um, they have a, a sort of style of names they like that that is similar to Heat Signature's uh, name generator, and uh, they were both surprised that Heat Signature was able to generate them because usually name generators sort of don't do well at that. And I I didn't think about it until. Jack asked me this, but um, I realized it's actually, it's getting more credit than it really deserves. Because what it's, the reason it often seems to produce pretty good ones is that every time 
it generates them, it shows you four, right? You, it's just the character select screen shows four names. And if one of them is good, that leaps out to you and you think, oh, that's a great name. But you ignore the other three because the other three are probably garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and so name generation is great like that if, they, if they're like scattershot. And actually, while I was um, while reading this, I realized I have a, we made a, a sort of, as a development tool, we made a tactical breach wizards class generator, which just, we're just trying to think of concepts that fuse some kind of tactical thing or some kind of mystical thing. Um, and so we just listed all the tactical words we could think of and all the mystical words we could think of and then had Game Maker randomly combine them. Um, the the tricky part is that, you know, a name like Navy Seer or Riot Priest, um, it's not consistent whether the tactical part comes first or the mystical part mm. comes first. And I didn't really want to restrict it that way. But I also didn't want to make like four different lists for all the different ways of doing it. So we just didn't care. And we just let it generate like hundreds of them. And so you get ones that like, I've just generated a bunch now. Um, so it comes up with things like Hellfire Officer, <laughs> uh, Ware Breacher, uh, Stealth Pyromancer, all of which are like in the vein that we want. Mm. None of them are particularly good. Tactical Mystic, which is vague. Mm. <laughs> um, but then, of course, some of them will just be like uh, just two tactical words, like um, comms officer. <laughs> Not the most imaginative thing. There's one here that just says bullet marksman. He's <laughs> like a marksman, but he uses bullets. <laughs> I think... In terms of things that tickle me that maybe I'm too old for, I don't know. I love a pratfall, but I don't think you're ever too old for a pratfall, are you? Like, really? There's a thing I like to do. Nah. Uh, the big slapstick game for me is definitely still Warzone. I know I bang on about it, but you can do a thing in the... Um, there are two great tricks. Here are two hacks, pro tips for Call of Duty Warzone during the warm-up. One is um, if you're in a party with your friends and they're running around the ground in the warm-up, uh, pull your parachute early and then release it because your parachute will open up automatically when you get low to the ground unless you've already triggered it once and then you can free fall. Um, and the game is to try and face plant into the ground in front of your friends and surprise them with the sudden, <laughs> the sudden violence of your impact. Um, because um, also if you can time this right, occasionally... At the end of a war zone, it must like kill all of the player characters when it triggers the actual loading process for the the game itself. And so, when you um, when the warm up period ends, very occasionally you'll just randomly hear a completely random player character just do their death scream out of nowhere. So you'll <laughs> so it'll, it will get to the end. It'll be like get ready to go to the war zone, like five, four, three, two, one, and then someone will go. Ah! And then it'll just start. <laughs> and that gets me every time. And the other thing, and this is the real pro strat. So if you're in free fall, as I described, uh, after a certain amount of time, your character will put their hands out in like the, oh no, I'm falling way, like in front of you. Like the hands will go like, like out in front of them in a way that if you were still would make you look like you were pretending to be a, a zombie, um, but you're falling through the sky. But in the last five to 10 seconds of the warm up, you're completely invulnerable. So if you manage to hit the ground in that period, you will then walk around on the ground <laughs> with bibbly falling arms in front of yourself. And it's very, very good. And um, I like it a lot. <laughs> and I don't know if that makes me 12 necessarily, but I'm definitely not treating Call of Duty Warzone with the dignity it would like me to regard it. So there is that. Um, anyone else got any immaturities lurking in the cupboard? Again, this is just pratfalls rather than like 
you know, dirty jokes, but um, in Oblivion, you could customize spells to some extent, not quite as much as you could in Morrowind, but, but more than you can in Skyrim. And you could in particular choose their target. And so I would always make a spell that casts paralysis on self and paralysis in that game just like froze your ragdoll. Like it made, went to ragdoll mode, it made all the joints incredibly stiff. And if you just go to the top of a mountain and you cast paralysis on self, not only do you, <laughs> do you make yourself rigid, but you do so, there's a really dramatic cast animation where you like throw your hand in the air in this heroic pose. And that's when it freezes you. <laughs> and then you just keel forwards and just like roll down an entire mountain as this like rubbery, <laughs> rigid person. <laughs> That gets me every time. Uh, the old rigid rubbery mountain tumble. <laughs> <laughs> rigid rubbery mountain mage. <laughs> That's a whole different game, Tom. It's not the one you're making. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if we even need to go into detail for this for you. Marsh is the original goblin fancier. <laughs> I do, oh, there is a real pleasure in coming up with names. Oh, it's, it's the best. It's almost the best part of any writing job. I think mean, mm. this this uh, this RPG project I'm, I'm working on with Jim, it, it is just ninety percent silly, silly sounding names. Your Satchley Greds and your Bruntard Fleckwiths and Balbury <laughs> Propes. <laughs> <laughs> your Benoit Lenks, etc. We can't. We've come up with so many different kinds of beer. It's completely pointless. Nobody's <laughs> going to care about the beer. I've I spent most of the day today doing a doing a table for cursed pies. There's no point. <laughs> there was no point doing that. That is the most marsh thing I've ever heard you say. Yeah. It's, it's good though. That is good. Oh. With a roll of a dice, GMs will be able to assert a very marginally different experience for their players to no <laughs> real benefit to anybody. <laughs> a pie based experience yeah. hell yeah uh, next up is an email from Caroline who writes Dear Creek and Crawdad I've been playing Dark Souls 3 and I realised that all I really want to do is wander around the cool level levels and explore and try and map it out in my head what does this without a fight against a suit of armour animated by undead catholic butterflies do I just try to play Uru Ages of Mist which is capitalised is why I yelled it um, I'm now an American delighting in air conditioning, but I spent a summer in Brooklyn with a broken foot and nowhere to get outside without air conditioning. My only way of cooling off was to crutch to the shower, sit on a tiny plastic stool and huddle, huddle under a cold shower until I started shivering. I would do this four to six times a day. I think I remember this fondly. Perhaps you could install podcasting equipment in your shower, like in one of those plastic cases that they sell. <laughs> May you and yours breathe easy and stay healthy, Caroline. Thank you for that. Uh, it's a good thought. Um, I, it's such a left turn. <laughs> it is an extreme left turn. Do you want the opposite of Uru Ages of Mist being trapped in an apartment in Brooklyn <laughs> during the summer while ill, which I've also weirdly had that experience. I once stayed with a friend in his tiny apartment in Brooklyn while I was both, uh, I spent a lot of the time extremely hungover uh, and the other time extremely allergic to cats, one of which is my fault and the other which is cats. Um, but I'll leave it to the audience <laughs> to figure out which one's which. And... Um, and <laughs> And uh, and that was fucking horrible. So I have this this you know that there's some sympathy for me. Um, in terms of the experience of mapping out a cool interconnected area, um, without having to fight a animated suit of armor full of Catholic butterflies, 
I don't know. She could play uh, Dark Souls 2 and borrow somebody else's save because unlike, I think, any of the other Dark Souls games, the monsters depopulate the more you play that game. So if you did take somebody's late game save, you would be able to tootle around a largely empty world. That's a good Though suggestion. It's not very interestingly interconnected because it's the most kind of incoherent of the Dark Soulsian worlds. Mm. It's funny that there are still new things to try and figure out about those games. I'm replaying Dark Souls 1 at the moment because it's a good bit of comfort food. But so I want to say that the, the best way to achieve this is to find a guide that will get you a bit of an overpowered character and then do that. But it doesn't get you around the combat, it just makes it more manageable. Hmm. Um, but yeah, in terms of other games that embrace that kind of exploration, but without that threat, I don't really know. And I guess it may be missed. But you, then you have to do puzzles about tiles. Yeah. What is yeah. that worse. Um, <clears throat> fantasy world exploring game where you are a painter? Uh, Eastshade is hmm. what it's called. Yeah. Um, that, that may scratch some sort of itch. I don't think it has the same dark fantasy uh, aspects of or like maybe what attracts you to the Dark Souls, but... It's pretty good in that respect. There are also other kinds of uh, just pure exploratory walking games. I think there's one uh, in Iceland, which is, I believe, a fairly authentic recreation of a bit of Iceland. Um, maybe that's maybe that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's good enough. Um, <laughs> and to to round out our uh, question section we have an email from russ uh so i'm going to summarize a little bit of this uh just so that we can't get too abruptly accused of um questions uh, questions about the podcasting about the podcasting questions from questions put it that way um but russ is as recently uh, uh supported us on patreon so thank you very much for that and uh has been listening back to kind of trace the origins of certain kinds of creating crowbar um traditions shall we say he explains that the podcast voice was first used in episode seven at two hours and seven minutes what didn't get the name podcast voice then but it was graham there you go if you've if you've if you ever wanted to know who to blame it's graham um graham is also the first person to say questions from questions which is sort of interesting if you care about that kind of thing but then to the meat of this the big one uh, the origins of thanks for listening everybody uh, Russ writes, this happened in episode one, one hour, 39 minutes, and is a co-creation. This is where we're going to get into some, this is where we're going to learn to know our history. Marsh <laughs> definitely invented the slurred way of saying it, but he was taking the piss out of someone else who said it first. Listening to it, I think it sounds like Tom F speaking, but Graham's comment immediately after suggests that he might have uttered the fateful words. My question is this, who was it? In, in this case, who was it that originally said, thanks for listening in a weird way, Graham or Tom F? Whose name gets to be put alongside Marsh as co-creator of the oldest CNC tradition? All of the above, with apologies to Kane if they've already written this down somewhere and I didn't find it. Thank you for over seven years of nonsense and insight, uh, Russ. I'm so, afraid it's, it's just me, I think. I think I say yep. it incorrectly, and then maybe I mockingly repeat myself in a more exaggerated manner, and then Graham says something like, yep, that's definitely how you say it. Yeah, it is because basically you yes you, it, the 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 plot twist they were both Marsh, and um, yeah. and and because the I can remember this really clearly because I remember being in that room in your old old house 
um, recording it and you having an expression on your face like, well, shit, I've got to do that again. <laughs> and then it just keep been going. And then seven years passing <laughs> without <laughs> without us redoing it. And um, and this actually, I think for a while, it's not there at the moment, but for a while on the website, you could click a link into your little bio, Marsh, that would link to a video of a dog turning around and going, I'm Marsh Davies. And that was because... <laughs> That was because you, you're, you're, you decided to like make fun of yourself a third time, and we ended up not using that part of the outro. I think, and then I clipped it out and put it on a dog for some reason. I think it's because when I introduced myself, I actually mispronounced my own name, so I supplied yes. you <laughs> then with a series of uh, recordings of me saying I'm Marsh Davis, so that you could cut it in, and then no, that's it, them. yeah. Yeah, I dubbed in the correct, the correct <laughs> name, but you did send me that one as well, so I weaponized it against you. Yeah, that, that <laughs> was it. So there you go. There, there's a piece of there's a piece of podcast trivia. The first thing that was ever substituted from one of these otherwise largely as is recordings was basically the first thing Marsh ever said. So <laughs> <laughs> all been a fabric of lies. Yeah, ever since. Ever since. Um uh but yeah uh, and obviously that's um quite enough uh navel gazing and it's also all of the questions that we've got time for this evening because it's late it's very late and it's bedtime for all of us apart from probably tom yeah. um yeah uh, so if you'd like to send us a question for future episodes of the podcast you can do so by emailing us the questions at creatingcrowbar.com you can find us on twitter at creating crowbar we have a youtube channel youtube.com forward slash Creighton Crowbar. We have a website at Creighton Crowbar and Discord channel, which can be accessed through a link on the website. Uh, thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters um, who are responsible for allowing us to keep doing this podcast and failing to correct our mistakes for as long as we have. Um, and this is going remarkably well as outros go. So all that's left is for me to say that I have been uh, half sack fart scab. Um, <laughs> Joining me tonight have been Fart Sack Oldgroin. Thank you. <laughs> I like and... that you knew that's you. <laughs> <laughs> and Grump Lump Grump Snack. <laughs> yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> just, I really just wanted to know which ones you'd assign yourself. <laughs> um, but I, sh I should have known that I should be right in there. Right in there for the uh, Fart Sack Oldgroin. Got to get the golden um, names. You do. Um, uh what do we say now? Oh yeah, we say that thing. Marsh, would you like to actually take this opportunity? It's been seven. It's been seven years. Would you like to take this opportunity to get it right? Sarlene, <laughs> hey, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs>